You're listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We will be joined by cancer experts to discuss blood cancer diagnosis, treatment, side effects management, and the importance of clinical trials. They will share their experience in treating patients and discuss strategies for optimal patient care. Let's get the conversation started. Welcome to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. I'm Dr. Ken Miller. I'm a medical oncologist and a hematologist and also an LLS volunteer. And I want to thank you all so much for joining us on this episode. Just reflecting back just for a, a minute before we get started, I just want to say what a two years it's been for all of us as individuals and also as healthcare professionals. A whole new challenge was really thrust upon us. And I have to say, I'm proud to be part of our field because I think we've responded really well or as well as we can. So it's particularly timely to have an opportunity to talk about this uh, again today. We're going to be joined by Dr. John Leonard. He's in a senior Senior Associate Dean for Innovation and Initiatives, Executive Vice Chair of the Wild Department of Medicine, and the Richard T. Silver Distinguished Professor of Hematology and Medical Oncology at the Wild Cornell School of Medicine in New York. John, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here, and I want to also thank uh, you and in particular LLS for all you do for blood cancer patients and as well as everything that supports professionals uh, taking care of patients with blood cancer research, patient support, et cetera. It's really a great organization and I've been thrilled to work with LLS in various capacities over the years. So it's great to be here. Thank you. And yeah, I want to say I absolutely feel the same way. What a wonderful group. I'd like to start out with some questions that I would call truth or myth. Okay. And some will be pretty obvious. So here we go. The COVID vaccine can cause COVID. Truth or myth? That is a myth. That is a myth. The COVID vaccine can cause cancer. COVID vaccine cannot cause cancer. It's been given to, at this point, millions of patients and and individuals, I should say, and there's no evidence of that. And in fact, most patients with cancer especially need to get the COVID vaccine to be protective given their potentially immunocompromised state. The COVID vaccine is a risk for patients being treated for cancer. I would say that there's no added risk of side effects or complications for patients being treated for cancer to receive the COVID vaccine. And again, in general, because such patients have compromised immune systems, they're at particular risk for complications of COVID. So the cancer population, so to speak, really is one that should be prioritized and has been at various points been prioritized to get the vaccine. And finally, patients who are being treated for blood cancers don't benefit from the vaccine if they are on treatment or recently finished treatment. So that's a nuanced question. And I think that if you see 10 different patients, you might have three or four different scenarios. But generally speaking, patients with blood cancers can benefit from the vaccine and should receive the vaccine. The only real issue that comes up is in some cases, the timing of that vaccination versus the treatment is an issue. And one has to recognize that that's really a moving target as we have boosters now and presumably will have available future boosters. The whole, you know, how do we time vaccination and boosters with blood cancer treatment can result in a number of different 
kind of scenarios where one might make some modifications. But generally speaking, ultimately, I would say all blood cancer patients should get vaccinated for COVID, but there may be some nuances in the details of how that's done. You know, let me ask you a little bit more about that, because even among my colleagues, smart people, well-trained, but I heard a whole variety of different practices. Some say, so for example, patient with lymphoma getting rituxan. Some colleagues say, well, they shouldn't get their vaccine until they finish their rituxan, or it should be three months after finishing their rituxan. How about that as an example? So I think you highlight one of the scenarios. And so rituxan or rituximab is an anti-CD20 antibody. There are others such as obinutuzumab that people may be familiar with. And they deplete B cells in patients receiving them, typically for lymphoid malignancies as well as autoimmune and some other disorders. And so the idea is that the B cells are typically depleted in the ballpark of six months. And so It can be longer than that, but that's kind of the median, generally speaking, the median timeframe for that. There is evidence that if you receive rituximab and then you're vaccinated, your immune response will be diminished. And that's pretty clear from data in the flu. And I think we now know that that's pretty clear data with COVID vaccination. So there's no question that if a patient has recently had rituximab, for example, that their vaccine, and when I say recently, I would say, you know, within six months, maybe even longer than that, but let's use six months as a time frame. So there's no question that that patient will have a diminished immune response or is at risk for having a diminished immune response. The question is, what do you do about that? And I think that's what we have to deal with in practice. I mean, option one in that person would be to say, well, you're probably not going to respond well. Let's just wait and let's wait six months and that's the better time to do it or wait even longer. Well, of course, the problem with that strategy, and that's what some people are doing. They're saying, let's delay it and, you know, it'll work better in six months. The problem with that strategy, and I face this, and I'm sure you and others face that in your practice, it's, well, okay, well, so for that six-month period while we're waiting around, that patient has zero protection. What if I vaccinate that person and they have 10% protection and are making that up? Well, you know, that 10% may be meaningful. Or they may make a T-cell response, which rituximab presumably is having less of an effect on, if any. And maybe that T-cell response is helpful. So the value of that vaccine is clearly likely to be diminished in that scenario, but it may not be zero, and that may make a difference for the patient. And so I have to say that in some of these patients more recently, and as this scenario comes up and we have more vaccinations and now boosters, in some cases I'm saying, well, you know, why don't you go get the vaccine or if you were vaccinated before, get the booster, and then, you know, maybe we'll give you another booster in six months or a year, but at least getting a booster now could do something. And so I think you have to kind of walk through that scenario and that possibility because you know if you're doing nothing for six months, you know, you're doing nothing. So maybe by giving a booster, if the patient would otherwise be due, you're at least doing a little something that could have some value to the patient. And many of us think that we're going to be boosting regularly anyway. And so we may be doing it in six months again anyway for these patients. Yeah. Yeah. To take it a little bit further, because again, I've heard different points of view in terms of a stem cell, either auto or allo or CAR T. What are your thoughts on those? What's your overarching kind of philosophy? Is it the same for those patients too? 
I would say that it is. And I think that the transplant societies have come up with guidelines around this. The general theme and transplanters and CAR-T, we're learning more and more about this as well. But transplanters certainly have had a schedule of revaccinating patients after autologous and allogeneic transplant. And those have been worked on by various societies. And I think the general theme is similar here that patients getting an autotransplant and patients getting CAR T cells and patients getting an allotransplant as well will probably need to either be reboosted or or even start all over again at some point when they've had B cell recovery, which would be at least in the six months sort of range. So I think it's the same sort of story. I don't know that I would necessarily run and go vaccinate somebody or boost somebody right before the, right after their autotransplant or CAR T cells. That said, uh, you know, in a lot of scenarios, on the flip side, if we know a patient's going to get one of these therapies and they might be due for a booster, you know, we have tried when we can to boost them, you know, a week or two before their planned therapy so that at least there's some immune response that hopefully will cover them through that gap as well. But I do think, as you said, that reboosting or revaccinating is likely to be something that we do and is in line with a number of the guidelines. I actually want to ask you one more question along those lines, because at least in the public domain, the concept of an mRNA vaccine was and is new. That broad category of vaccine, what are the important things that our listeners should know about this vaccine so that they can share it with their patients in terms of risks and benefits and advantages and disadvantages? I think that the key thing that we know right now at this point is that this vaccine or these vaccines, generally speaking, have been given to millions of people. We have a a very long track record. I mean, as of we're recording this on the 16th of December and over 8.5 million people have received COVID vaccines in the world. And, you know, you can look at the Johns Hopkins coronavirus website. I'm sure some people have seen it and get updates on what's going on with COVID as well as vaccination. But a lot of people have received this vaccine. And the studies, like most vaccine studies, were very large because they needed to be to show a difference. I think that I'm very comfortable with the safety. I think that unfortunately vaccination has become and COVID has become politicized. And so that has led to a number of perspectives that I would say are not as based in science as uh, they could or should be. But in general, I think we're very comfortable with that. And we've had data now move from the general population to children, to pregnant women. And those data are really quite encouraging. And on the flip side, we have had across the world, 5 million people die of COVID. And so over 5 million people die. And so the risk benefit is very, very favorable. I think that the track record so far of these vaccines, while we don't have you know 10 years of follow-up, there's not really a reason to think that we're going to be seeing issues from these vaccines in a negative way a year or two or three years down the line at this point. The thing that's gotten the most attention in the press is the myocarditis issue. But Mm -hmm. in reality, the risk of myocarditis and cardiac side effects from COVID is much, much higher than vaccination. And I think the mRNA technology is one that is very important. It's very valuable. I think we're going to be seeing more and more of it. It's not permanently integrated into patient cells or uh, anything of that nature. And so I think 
it's one that I think is really a, a major advance and having a, a major impact. Absolutely. Let's move on to talk about treatment of both symptomatic and asymptomatic patients. For example, you go down to clinic and a patient comes in or calls and says they were just tested, they're asymptomatic, they're being treated for cancer, let's say lymphoma, and their test for COVID is positive. Their rapid test, or for that matter, their PCR. What do you recommend in that situation? Well, so there are very clear guidelines from the CDC and other national groups, and I would encourage, and again, reminding that this is rapidly changing, and I get updates. I got an update in the last day or two from our infectious disease colleagues. I'm sure you're getting them as well, and different institutions have different policies and such. So it's really important, and I think the most important thing is to, whenever you're seeing these patients, look at the latest guidelines, and hopefully everyone's uh, medical center is keeping up with that. Briefly, for inpatients, as of today, which is, again, mid-December, we have the IV antiviral remdesivir, and we have immunomodulator drugs, dexamethasone, tocilizumab, and baricitinib that are for inpatients. And there are criteria for that, and there is value. And in some of those, there's evidence of improving mortality. That is obviously the minority of our patients. The much more common scenario that you allude to is the outpatient who falls into a high-risk group. And let's say that's what we're focusing on because we're all blood cancer providers. Mm -hmm. So the high-risk group who either has an exposure or has a positive test, and we'll put the exposure aside for a second, has a positive test and with or without either no symptoms or mild symptoms. And so as of now, we have three monoclonal antibody opportunities that are available. These are available through FDA emergency use authorizations. For high-risk patients, they've been demonstrated to reduce disease progressions. And this is, and I'm going to stumble over the names because you've heard of them in different ways, but bamlanivimab and edisevimab, and that's one, casavirimab and imdevimab. So these are two cocktails. And then Sotrovimab, which is a third one. And so these are available and many medical centers have them available and we're using them. I have patients that are getting them this week because they've had a positive test, et cetera. The other agents that are not yet available are the oral antivirals. And these are expected to be available soon. I'm going to have trouble with the names again, but I'll try to use the generic names and not focus on the company. But Molnupiravir is one, uh-huh. and Nirmatrelvir is the other one. The last one is also known as Paxlovid, which is Pfizer. That's the one I'll mention. The antibodies, the most common antibody ones are from Regeneron and from Lilly. And there are also other companies. GSK is involved with one of the antibodies as well. So the bottom line of those is that these are agents that, you know, we have available, we're using. The big problem that is going to come up, which hopefully will have a solution, is that the monoclonal antibodies that we have available and in widespread use have different effectiveness against the Omicron variant. And maybe Mm -hmm. we'll come back and talk about that more. However, the oral antivirals, and in particular the nirmatrelvir or Paxlovid, that's not yet available, seems to be at this point quite effective against the Omicron variant. Now, again, when I say effective, ineffective, I'm saying this at a very high level because the assays and the tests and so on 
These are not necessarily the most robust in vivo sorts of assessments or clinical trials. So the point being that the antibodies we use today may not be very helpful in the near future because they may be less effective in some cases against the variant that is becoming more common, the Omicron variant. But that being said, the at least one of the antivirals may be very helpful in that. So I do expect that we will see for this reason, probably a shift for both practical reasons of easier to give an antiviral pill and also for the sensitivity patterns that we will probably in early 2022, hopefully in January timeframe, probably be doing less of the IV antibodies and more of the oral antivirals, which will obviously be good for our system of having to manage all of these injections, et cetera. Well, along those lines, what is the turnaround time is this being tested? But again, when you're faced with a patient with COVID, is the subtyping available? It sounds like it might be helpful to know which meds to use, but do you anticipate that becoming, in a sense, almost like a culture and sensitivity uh, is now for bacteriology? I suspect that, so as of today, and again, we're in mid-December, the CDC is reporting that about 3% of new COVID infections in the U.S. are of the Omicron variant. I happen to be in New York City, and the data that we have as of today, and this is just from my ID colleagues, is that 13% today in New York City are Omicron. And some medical centers are reporting as high as 30%. I suspect that you know, by the time January hits and the needle is going to keep moving. And so we are not, and I have not, I think that the variant testing is really being done for epidemiologic purposes, not individual patient management purposes. And I suspect that while that may, there may be a period or scenarios where that'll be done in reality, what it's going to be, I think, my prediction would be that it's going to be, well, in the area I'm working and living in, Omicron is this percent epidemiologically, and so we're going to treat everybody presumably as if they have Omicron variant. And so within several weeks, I think it'll be the majority of cases will be the Omicron. That seems to be what the ID mavens are thinking. So for better or worse, that's it. And we're obviously learning about Omicron. We're hopeful. The early word seems to be that it's more transmissible, but maybe less severe. What that means to our patients who are immunocompromised, again, remains to be seen because we really don't know. But it seems like that will have some pluses, maybe, but we're just going to have to adapt as we've been adapting all along. Yeah. For patients who have a blood cancer on treatment who get COVID, what are your recommendations in terms of treatment to delay, to decrease doses, any other strategies to use for them? And let me make a question maybe, again, a little more nuanced, but how a second part would be for patients who are asymptomatic but just test positive. What do you do with their treatment? So from the standpoint of their cancer therapy, and we should potentially talk a little bit about prevention as well, because that's a big part of it. But for patients who are in the middle of therapy, think that it really is an individualized decision. I think that clearly you want to be able to assess what's going on with that patient. And if they're acutely ill, we generally are not, you know, with any viral illness, with any bacterial illness, we're not typically giving a cycle of chemotherapy in the middle of an acute infection for a patient. Pretty much we can avoid that. Not always, but pretty much we can avoid or delay things a little bit. So the scenario where someone's getting curative therapy is something that we obviously don't want to compromise cure. And 
the patient is stable and that's a clinical judgment sort of thing, we're often proceeding. It may be that we delay things a few days or a week, but in general, we don't want to say, well, you have COVID, we're going to give up on your curative lymphoma therapy or your curative leukemia therapy. We're typically going to try to navigate it, give all the supportive care and the treatment and plow ahead with maybe some tweaks. The scenario that comes up, I think, more often is somebody that's on chronic therapy. And that can be someone with an indolent lymphoma on maintenance therapy, mantle cell lymphoma on maintenance therapy. You have patients with CLL that are on chronic therapy, CML that are on chronic therapy, et cetera. And, you know, in those scenarios, typically we are, we are taking a little break because A, those are chronic treatments. So taking a break for a week or two generally is not a big problem in the big picture. And so typically we're holding those things and taking a little bit of a break. I have a patient I saw today who turned out not to have COVID, but had an exposure and was PCR, but we were all ready to just kind of take a break on his therapy and have him come next week while everything's sorted out. This is somebody with a chronic lymphoproliferative disorder. And so that's a scenario where I think is is reasonably common. And again, stopping someone's BTK inhibitor for their CLL for a week, we stop it for surgical procedures and bleeding risk or someone has a rash or whatever. This is in that sort of frame. But it really comes down to, I think, the individual judgment of what's going on with the scenario. And is stopping therapy or pausing therapy going to help things? You know, we don't know, but it's probably not going to hurt. So that's the tack we typically take. John, I want to ask you a question that I was asked really a few times already this week. Patients with blood cancers who I'm treating saying, the holidays are coming up. Can I visit my grandchildren? Can I be inside with them? Do I need a mask? Can I go without a mask if they're triple vaccinated? So how are you answering that question? Well, I sympathize with you and I'm sure many of our listeners who obviously the world is tired of COVID and the challenges of dealing with it. And I know we all have our moments when we're getting a question, a a version of what you just had for the fifth time in clinic and you're saying the same thing and you don't have a great answer and it's not the answer that the patient wants to hear because everybody wants Mm -hmm. a get out of jail free pass, right? They Everyone wants yeah, to say, yeah. myself included, we want to be able to say, oh, yes, you can do that. No problem. You're, you've got a, a warranty that if you go do that, nothing bad's going to happen. And right. uh, or is it safe? And it's I think we have to recognize as healthcare professionals, we're bearing a burden in a long way and patients are bearing a burden. But this kind of constant questioning, which is totally understandable, just wears you down amongst other things. First of all, the advice I give is very individualized because someone who just had a bone marrow transplant or CAR-T is in one category of they're going to be extra cautious in one direction, regardless of COVID, but including COVID. Someone who has, you know, an indolent lymphoma or perhaps even CLL who has no major abnormalities, no therapy, doing fine, I tend to tell those patients that they are a nine out of 10 immune system wise. And so likely they can do almost what anybody normally could do, but what normal, quote unquote, normal people, if that exists, non-immunocompromised patients, right, you know, what right. they do is a matter of judgment and we all vary in that. 
I, in general, the middle group is the harder group. And in general, I tell people that if they're around healthy, not ill feeling or appearing people that have been fully vaccinated, and by that I mean boosted as well, that they're probably in a pretty good position. And if they're not sure about someone's situation, and to me the biggest concern is a restaurant, that I would be concerned about that. So especially with Omicron going on, I think for the general public, it is a little bit concerning to eat in restaurants without a mask if it's crowded with people around you that you don't know anything about their status. And that's something that I would tell most of my patients to avoid. But if they're outside or if they're with people that they know have a reasonable sense that they've been vaccinated and are not acutely ill, not that they're home free, but that that's a group of people that one can be a little bit more relaxed with. But at the end of the day, all this comes down to kind of where you are on your risk tolerance scale of other things. Sure. Finally, one last question. And again, holiday season, people are going to be around relatives and then get a phone call saying, geez, it turned out cousin Bill just came down with COVID and you were with him a few days ago. What should we as professionals taking care of our patients with blood cancers, what should we advise them and counsel them? Well, I think after exposure to somebody who turned out in retrospect to be positive, you have to assess the risk. Were they around that person when they were masked or outside? Or did they sit next to that person at the Christmas dinner table for 10 hours and so on? And so that's a big, you know, the degree of contact, the closeness, you know, was it in more or less six feet? Was it passing in a hallway or was it spending time with someone? That risk is an important kind of barometer, as is the risk of the individual patient and their immunocompromised state, et cetera. So you have to bundle, I think, all of that together in conjunction with the patients and your own risk tolerance, looking at that situation. It is important to keep in mind that as of now, there are two FDA emergency use authorizations and the two antibody combos that we talked about, and I'm just going to call them CAS and IMD and BAM and EAT, they both have availability for high-risk patients for post-exposure. So somebody comes home and they find out that their spouse or their child is positive and they've been spending a lot of time together. This may be something to consider in people who are at a particularly high risk as a prevention, even before they're positive or before they're sick. And these agents have been tested and there are bigger studies in nursing homes and other scenarios, but household contacts can benefit from this. Now, again, this may change because these are less effective against the Omicron variant and probably one would assume are going to be less useful as prophylaxis. But at least for right now, where the Delta variant is the more prominent concern in those areas and at this exact time period, those might be useful for those patients. And we've had a couple patients that we've offered that to in recent days. Well, I want to say this has been a very timely, a very interesting, and a very informative discussion. And I want to thank Dr. John Leonard. John, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. It's been a great topic and good to go through some of these important and sometimes challenging issues. Absolutely. I also want to thank everyone for listening to this informative and timely podcast. For more information 
on how LLS is supporting blood cancer patients during the COVID-19 pandemic, including patient support resources, webcasts, and additional podcasts, and information on study results of the benefits of additional vaccine doses for patients with blood cancers. Please visit lls.org coronavirus. And for other questions and to refer a patient, please contact our Information Resource Center by calling 800-955-4572. For a listing of all of our healthcare professional podcasts, continuing education activities, and healthcare professional resources, please visit lls.org CE. And finally, thank you again for joining us for this important conversation, and please stay tuned for more episodes coming your way. Thanks for listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We can be found on iTunes and other podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.treatingbloodcancers.org and provide your suggestions for future topics. Visit our archive section on our website for other great podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and on Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. And access our professional continuing education activities by visiting lls.org CE. Let's keep the conversation going. Until next time.